Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. As the bridge from the timeless dirge entitled Money Talks from the musical stylings of Alternating Current, Direct Current, or ACDC for short, says, Money Talks, yeah, yow. And then a guitar solo, and then Money Talks, BS Walks, Money Talks, come on, come on. And I think I can speak for all of us when I say, ain't that the truth? Yeah, yow. Money. What we all need, what we never have enough of, the solution to and cause of most problems. On today's episode, first we'll see that money is no object, until suddenly it is, and then we'll learn that the common link between robbery and medical lies is a mask, and finally we'll understand why it's preferable for those holding the purse strings to maybe not be absolute criminals. So get out that credit card, take a deep breath and hold it, and make an appointment with your tax man, because I'll give you the first one for free, but after that it's going to cost you. Here we go. Four relatively small wheels... A small, underpowered engine made it up to a small four-speed transmission with a high-low range selector. Four doors, a lot of rust, no AC, some heat, sort of. Manual windows, manual door locks. I bought that 1983 Dodge Colt four-door hatchback at the end of 1991, my first car, with 100,000 miles on it. It had bad shocks and a slipping clutch. Bought it for $300. My dad, who can do anything with cars, including just create them out of whatever ideas float around in that head of his, replaced the clutch and the shocks that I bought, and that car ran with very little problem until I sold it in the summer of 1995, with 130,000 miles on it for $350, to someone who promptly totaled it on a deer. Sad. That car was great. If I were to adjust for inflation, the purchase price of that car today would be just south of $650, and the sale price would have been a few dollars less than that. Thank you, Biden's inflation. I've had another 12 or 13 cars since then, including trucks, luxury SUVs, convertibles, and muscle cars. And I'll be honest, that little hatchback was easily in my top couple favorite cars. I could make an entire retrospective episode on that car. I taught multiple people how to drive a manual in that car. I learned how to use the emergency brake to turn corners in the winter. After my first attempt, where I slammed the back wheel into the curb, bending the axle, having to drive all winter with a slightly kinked rear axle, I put a large thumping sound system that could be heard for literally miles in there, and I had LED lights inside that would flash with every bass thump. In the winter, I would have to ask the passenger in the rear seat to reach back and scrape the inside of the back window as it would frost up inside. I jumped the tracks near the house, and we're talking four people in the car, all four wheels off the ground, multiple times, until my dad pointed out that I was about to shove the new shocks through the rusting fender wells if I kept doing it. I decided to stop. And I raced one of my best friends down a back road, and despite what we all thought, that little colt smoked his big Pontiac. 
Oh, it was such a fun car. And anytime I needed a part, new parts were reasonably priced, and we could usually go to the local wrecking yard and find a part that we needed for a few bucks. Now, I've got two sort of frustrating, sort of funny stories of where we are today, and trust me, the days of having that old beater, uh, just a fun car to run into the ground, fix it up, then run it again, oh, the sun is setting on those days, sad to say. Over the years, we've made so many advances in cars. I remember when anti-lock brakes made their major appearance, and to be honest, I'm still not a huge fan of them. I remember when daytime running lights became a thing. Didn't like those at first, and now I guess I don't really care either way. Airbags came in, instantly causing deaths and injuries to spike because people stopped wearing seatbelts, which always just work without anything real fancy. And now we have lane departure warnings, we have radar cruise control, we have warnings that you should take a break from driving. We have fancy super bright LED headlights and taillights that do all sorts of things. Animations, they turn with the car, they self-level. And this isn't even mentioning all of the creature comforts and the, what are we up to now, 36-inch flat screens we have inside the cabin now? But with great power and great toys and features, it comes great responsibilities. Found on carandriver.com headline, pay up. GMC Hummer EV taillights cost $6,100 to replace. (laughs) Okay, that thump you just heard was your jaw hitting the floor. You'll want to pick that up, put it in a baggie. I'm sure the doc can snap that back into place later. So the story isn't very complex. In fact, the headline really kind of covers it, but let's see what the author has to say. He starts out with, quote, expensive cars are expensive. (laughs) Well, yes, I mean, here I am agreeing. So the Hummer, or more accurately the Humvee, originally a military replacement of the Jeep, became a civilian vehicle first with a rough domesticating of the military truck, then a smaller version, the Hummer 2, then a complete flop, the Hummer 3, then it was shelved. But recently, GM, or GMC, has found a reason to bring it back out again. Slap electric motors on this thing, put a massively heavy battery underneath it, give it all sorts of neat features, and call it an electric truck. And for those that want to line up to spend $110,000 or more on an electric vehicle with a relatively short range, a virtually useless truck bed, a moderate tow capacity, which of course will destroy your range, and apparently parts and repair costs that will make you plots, will go ahead. To me, not any of those things make me want to drive it. I'd rather have my Colt back prior to the deer collision, of course. The author for Car and Driver writes that even though they realize the car they're talking about is very expensive, it, quote, became the most recent vehicle to leave us leaning against a wall with the world spinning around us. The issue? The cost of replacing even a single taillight. He stated that on a Hummer EV Facebook group, one member stated he was quoted $4,040 for the light, not counting installation. And looking at the list price, the part lists for $3,045.48. This is before taxes, labor, and whatever else they want to charge you. Because yes, that funny feeling on your stomach is the roughness of the wood of the barrel that they have you bent over. Car and driver reached out to GM to try to find out if this was actually accurate. And oh yes, it, it sure is. But don't worry, they have an explanation. See, quote, Each light has a microconductor in the housing that allows the individual lights to perform their respective animations. Oh, oh, well, I'd like for my taillights to dance and flash and do whatever it is they do, so sure, I, I definitely get that. 
So I thought, okay, well, expensive things are expensive, right? Now, how does that compare to my 2015 Mazda 3? So that car was somewhere around $35,000 new, but bringing that to today's price, <laughs> that would be about $43,500. So doing some math, that would mean to be comparable, a taillight for my car should be about $2,400. Now I did some scientific research on rockauto.com, and I find out that I'm in a precarious position as my taillight assembly is actually a two-piece assembly. So let's assume that I backed into my garage, like our Hummer EV Facebook user did, and cracked both pieces. My cost to replace the assemblies with bulbs would be about $150. Now, I'd do it myself, but let's assume I let the shop do it. That would probably be a couple hours of labor. I'm estimating high as it should only take like 15 minutes. So for, say, $300, I should be able to swap out my full taillight. Now, I don't know about you... But $300, it almost seems better than $6,000 or even $3,000. I also looked on Rock Auto for a taillight for this Hummer EV. Yeah, apparently it's made of unobtainium uh, as it's not even listed on their site. So apparently that barrel uh, just got more splintery as it sounds like you can only get this from GM. Now, GMC, having to spend a ton of money to produce these taillights that are worth more than most of the cars I've ever owned also has to deal with their clearly shoddy craftsmanship. Now, I say that only sort of snarky, as if if I were going to buy a new truck, I, I look very carefully into GMCs. I like GMCs. But at the same time, America hasn't made consistently reliable cars in, what are we going on, about 50 years now? It's more the exception than the, than the norm, at least in my humble opinion at this point, you know, based on seeing all of the recall notices. I mean, door may open. Door closing and staying closed mechanisms have been fairly well figured out for... A century? So, anyway. Speaking of recalls, found on thedrive.com headline, GMC Terrain Headlight Recall Fix is Just a Piece of Tape. So apparently the 2010 to 2017 GMC Terrain, which I believe was their mid-sized SUV, which is still huge, has superty-duperty bright headlights that just blind a driver after driver after dri No, wait, hold on, no. Apparently there was one. One consumer complaint, not one million, not 1,000, just, just the one, one complaint that the headlights were too bright. So for some reason, the NHTSA got involved and decided that GMC needed to recall 740,000 vehicles to fix the problem. So what exactly is the problem? Well, apparently the super clear, super bright low beams reflect on the high beam housing at one specific point, which creates a bright spot. Now, GM has said they've changed the design since 2019 on new vehicles, and replacement headlight housings for the older ones have the new design, so as they're replaced, it'll be fine, and that it won't affect safety of the driver or other drivers, and that the only time this could be any sort of a problem is in conditions of dense fog or snow. The NHTSA wasn't having any of that. Quote, the absence of a complaint does not mean that there have not been any safety issues, nor does it mean that there will not be safety issues in the future. Oh, well, that pretty much just tells any car manufacturer that they can be subject to anything that the NHTSA doesn't like that they paint under the guise of safety. So, Maybe they need to be added to the list of acronymed government agencies that need to be, I don't know, reined back in and neutered a bit. Hmm? So despite the protest by GM, 
uh, they were forced to fix the problem via a recall of three-quarters of a million cars. As a response, the recall went out this March, and the fix is to ensure the temperature is above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, clean the headlights thoroughly, and apply the headlamp applique to the exact spot shown in the technical bulletin. Yeah, they basically created a little parallelogram-shaped foggy sticker to place pretty much right in the middle of the full headlight housing in order to kill that one little bright spot. Apparently, the dealer applied applique, you know, the sticker that looks like you have a scuff spot in the center of your headlight. Well, it isn't making drivers happy. I guess if I went in for the fix, were I to have one of these SUVs, if I didn't like the sticker, which I wouldn't, I'd go ahead and peel the stupid thing off, use a little goo gone, and clean up my headlight and be on my way. And the drivers coming at me in the dense fog or the snow can just suck it up for the few seconds that my lights are a touch bright, like what I do when I'm driving towards someone that's decided they just want to use their brights all of the time, or toward that car that had their headlights aimed by someone with apparently severe vision problems. So, after these two articles, my main question is, what's going on here? Is it just me, or does it feel like most of this current era, especially in the so-called first world, specifically America... Does it feel like that headlight sticker and the $6,000 taillight are emblematic of our current point in time? I mean, sure, I see the humor in these stories, and that's part of what you listen to this for. Well, I think you do. But I also think that you might listen for a different viewpoint than may first be gleaned. And I'll be honest, this started as just a couple wow articles, followed by some chuckling. But as one of the points of this podcast, I, I want to try to look at this world through a biblical lens. I mean, if I didn't, I might go mad. So I'm sitting here trying to think of what do these articles mean? They're ridiculous, right? We see the incredible excess, sure, but it's got to be more than that. Now, I look at this world and I can understand Solomon when he said, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or you can sub in meaningless for vanity. It's it's interesting if you just filter Ecclesiastes to the words vanity or vanities, and I've put a Blue Letter Bible link in the notes with these filters turned on. In the ESV, 34 times he uses these words over 27 verses. There are 222 verses in Ecclesiastes, so just over 10% deal with the vanity that Solomon found in life. For instance, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind." Doesn't this sound like today? And I'm sure every generation, every era has felt this, but this is the first time in my life that I can think of these verses and say, oh, yeah, that is, uh, that is absolutely correct. I mean, we have a fairly high-end SUV, a single person that complains about his or her personal problem, a struggle for a power between a huge government agency and a huge corporation, and the solution is a piece of tape. 
We have that same corporation making a massive, virtually useless, unbelievably expensive vehicle with virtually useless, unbelievably expensive parts, and we have people that have paid too much for something they didn't need for the vanity of it, now shocked and aghast that the parts are expensive. We've set up a world of vanity and striving after wind. People are constantly getting the newest car, the newest iPhone, the latest overpriced Chinese slave labor made Nikes. They're in constant processes of remodeling the house, throwing out the old appliances, bringing in all new, just to do it again in a few years. Keeping up with the Joneses is now just how we live life. It no longer has any sort of negative connotation. And as we get more stuff, newer stuff, bigger stuff, incurring more debt, more upkeep and more maintenance, we fall deeper and deeper into depression. We become more and more hopeless and we find ourselves striving after wind. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we shouldn't have new things or nice things or things we enjoy. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy the blessings we've been given. I'm not saying that money is evil or wealth is evil. I guess what I'm saying is that our focus is badly in need of correction. There are many theories as to what exactly we're supposed to think about Ecclesiastes and about Solomon. There's disagreement about if Solomon will even be in heaven or not. It seems that he drastically lost his way, turned from God. He's not mentioned in the Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews. And even Samson is mentioned in there. Just look at his life. So there's a lot of speculation. But what we know is that the Bible is God-breathed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's protected. I mean, if God can't protect his word, he's not much of a God, right? So the end of the book of Ecclesiastes sums up. After all of this exploration, this quest through life to find meaning, the point of everything, and it's summed up best in one sentence, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism has as its first question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Pretty close, right? We'll combine them. What should our focus be in this life? Fear God, glorify God, keep his commandments, and enjoy him forever. Now, how does that sound? Think of your life. Think of the debts you have. Think of the Jones you're trying to keep up with. Think of that job that you just hate. Think of those kids that drive you crazy. Think of the problems at your church. Think of the problems you have in your relationships. Think of all the stresses you have every day. And then say, my job is to fear God, glorify God, follow his commandments, and enjoy him forever. If that doesn't bring you some sense of peace and calm, some sense of grounding, I don't know what would. This isn't easy in this world, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we can just flip a switch and everything is perfect. But when whatever that stress is just pushes you to the brink of losing your mind, stop and think, I need to fear God, glorify God, keep his commandments, and enjoy him forever. And then love God and love your neighbor, no matter how frustrating other humans, not you of course, can be. Work as if you are working for God because you are. No matter how bad your job, no matter how bad your boss, you're doing your job ultimately to glorify God. And stop stressing about having to have the biggest, the best, the latest thing. If it causes you stress and seems like striving after wind, just let it go. You don't need to try to measure up to man's standards. Just fear God, glorify God, follow his commandments, and enjoy him forever. Well, when I started this podcast, I said that my intention would be to rarely cover anything COVID-related. Nearing a year later, I've kept that promise. I've maybe had one or two segments regarding COVID, a few other comments here or there regarding COVID or related, and I've shown more restraint than you can ever imagine, as I've read a lot of COVID-related articles. 
That said, from a logical Christian worldview, not much about this pandemic, the response by our various governments, private businesses, or the absolute fear and panic by individuals has made much sense to me at all. Never in our history have we locked ourselves down, been afraid of everyone and everything, wrapped ourselves in trash bags, worn not one, not two, but three masks, plus goggles and earplugs and gloves, forced people to just let family die alone and beg the government to inject us as many times as they want with whatever they say will work that they admittedly lied about, cobbled together, and for all intents and purposes, never tested, which has resulted in the most dangerous drug ever pushed on humans, while they tell us to just ignore all that data, with an efficacy that was lied about, then downgraded, then downgraded more, while actual real doctors, not just CDC or NIH or FDA mouthpieces, were demonized for doing actual science, actual medical studies, saving tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of lives with medicine the government forbade us to use. We've never had so many people willing to jam sticks up their noses or in China up their butts, taking test after test because we didn't trust the results of the test. But if we took many of those tests, then we could trust the results of the tests that we didn't trust the results of. Regardless of your view of this pandemic, based on the real data, we've solidified our place as the dumbest humans in all of history, at least to this point. Don't worry, though, because of this pandemic of an airborne virus, our governments, many government-paid scientists and large pharma corporations, as well as manufacturers of personal protective equipment, are bound and determined to make billions of dollars and maintain control of the global population through continued fear, lies, and utter stupidity. Oh, wait a minute. What? What? No, that came out poorly. Here, I'm sorry. Let me try that again. <clears throat> Our governments, scientists, big pharma, and manufacturers are bound and determined to keep us safe because they absolutely love mankind. That's, that's what I meant. Surely, that's what I meant, right? Well, one area that drove me absolutely insane from the very start was this immensely stupid idea that a mask was going to stop a virus. Now, you may believe in masking, and me saying this or any of this may have annoyed you, but let me just beg your indulgence for a few minutes more. Obviously, I can't go deeply into the science, but I can point out some things for you to think about. The logic that I used to reach my conclusion that of the many things I feel our dear leaders can do with masks, wearing them didn't make the list. Dan, what brought this rant on, you may ask? Well, found on TheAtlantic.com, headline, The Masks Will Wear in the Next Pandemic. So, my article would be fairly short. If I were to write the article for this headline, just one word needed in the body, none. But the Atlantic had a somewhat different take on this than I did, so, you know, here we go. So as the liberal rag that the Atlantic is, they start by praising the response we had to COVID in the United States. They declare the development and rollout of a so-called vaccine, which fits absolutely no legitimate definition of a vaccine, in only a year was just amazing. They also said that, quote, the vaccines turned out to work better than top public health officials had dared to hope. Oh, really? Well, to prove their point, they link back to an article from CNBC, August 8th of 2020, of that little lying troll Anthony Goebbels Fauci saying that the chances of any vaccine being highly effective is... Not great. In that article, they state that scientists were hoping for 75% effectiveness, but they take 50 or 60%, and the FDA said they'd authorize it as long as it was at least 50% effective. 
Anybody ever hear that before? Of course, that was before the election, at which point the narrative had to change, and they told us that the vaccine was, what, 99% effective? And, of course, as data came out, we found out that that was a lie. But let's not bog down here. We need to continue on. They also tout antiviral treatments, saying those in combination with the vaccines have helped Americans, quote, resume something approximating pre-pandemic life. So they don't mention that it had to be certain antivirals. Paxlovid comes to mind that literally doesn't work at all. While all antivirals like ivermectin, oh yeah. Oh yes, the one and only horse paste was demonized because the profit margin was next to nothing. As for approximating pre-pandemic life, this is how you can tell they're completely out of touch with reality. In fact, the headquarters of the Atlantic recently moved from Washington, D.C. to about 12 miles down the road in Washington, D.C. So they're clueless about the fact that most of America returned to very, very close to pre-pandemic life well over a year ago. But then they bemoan the time it took to get the vaccines developed and out, even though they came out in record time, you know, due to compromises that are now biting us and will continue to bite us for generations to come. They say that in the time we waited, 300,000 Americans died. But then they say that with variants, despite the vaccines and the antivirals, another 700,000 have died. So, so vaccines are more effective than we hoped. They came out incredibly fast, but not fast enough as 300,000 people died. But after they finally came out, along with Paxlovid, we could get back to normal and only another 700,000 people have died since the, the super effective vaccines and the, the antivirals. Do you think they read what they wrote and said, oh yeah, our, our readers will never catch that? Or do you think they have their heads so far up the left's narrative uh, that they can't even see their contradiction? Anyway... The point of their article is that clearly we can't solely rely on the pharmaceutical industry, although they do still want us to take shots and drugs. No, we need to fix our air. Now look, I do agree with their statement that we should ensure we're ventilating indoor spaces cleanly and adequately. I'd point to schools as an example, as they seem to pop up with regularity as having, you know, mold in their ventilation systems. They say that work is being done to develop germicidal lighting, but when it does come out, it'll probably take a lot of government funding to get it installed. Why? Why do we always run to the government for funding? I mean, that so-called funding is nothing but our tax dollars, or maybe more just printed up funny money. And they're not talking about, you know, like schools and public buildings. They're talking about every building, everywhere. But let's not worry about that. The point is that we really need to be ready for an airborne virus or a biological attack by having the perfect mask. The author is just in shock that the N95 is still two and a half years and one totally made from scratch total vaccine later. It's still the best we've got. He says that the N95s are quite good, emphasis his, filtering out at least 95% of 0.3 micron particles. Of course, he doesn't mention that the COVID virus is 0.06 to 0.14 microns in size, so you could fit two to five little can-canning viruses across the opening in the weave of your mask. He then talks about how they're uncomfortable and, and hurt your ears and your nose over time, and they're hot, and it makes it hard to understand people, and oh, how they're not reusable, and if you don't fit test them... Well, quote, the efficacy for the average wearer probably falls well short of the advertised 95%. 
Yeah, okay, the old fit test. In fact, a study was done on this, and it was found that if you have as little as a 3% gap in the seal to your face, the efficacy drops to just about 0%. He also neglects to mention that you can't fit test a mask to a face with a beard, as the beard hair keeps a mask from creating a full seal. He also neglects to add that if it was sealed perfectly, almost nobody would wear them because it starts to get really hard to breathe inside there. Okay, let me jump in and give a quick principle of filtration here. Filtration works by using some sort of a mesh of something to catch particles of a certain size while letting smaller particles pass through. Think of the old gold miners sifting for gold in the river with their sifting pan, scooping up a bunch of sand, washing the sand through the openings, catching anything bigger than a pebble. This is the same principle as the filter on your home HVAC system, or on your vacuum, or your car's air or oil. Each of these filters have a certain micron and an efficiency rating that's typically called a beta rating or a beta ratio, meaning they'll catch a certain percentage of a certain size particle and larger. Now, because these meshes are rarely uniform, like a tennis racket mesh, but rather they're mostly randomly haphazardly layered, smaller particles than their rating can be caught because of a random smaller opening in the mesh. But that also allows larger particles to get through because of a larger opening in the random mesh. That's your efficiency rating. If you use a filter that has too small of a particle rating and too high of an efficiency, you can actually damage your system. If you put an air filter in your heater blower that's too restricting, you'll burn the blower motor out because it's working too hard to try to suck the air that it's trying to blow through the system. You'll also notice that you're not getting the airflow you used to, and you'll hear your system struggling. Likewise, if you were to put too restrictive of an oil filter on your car, you would actually strip out all of the additives that are added to the oil to make it even better than just regular oil, and you could run the risk of starving your car for the precious needed oil. Well, this principle works for face masks as well. I mean, let's be honest, the perfect filter to keep COVID viruses out of your lungs would be plastic wrap, you know, tightly sealed to your face. You wouldn't get any virus through that. However, it's not overly useful as you'll die in a few short minutes. So they say to just use a mask, a cloth mask, that's just fine. But is it? I mean, it restricts your breathing, but it's literally like trying to stop sand with a chain link fence. And yes, that's accurate. I did the calculations on this back at the beginning of all of this stupidity. It's useless. The medical mask is better, but not really. It's still not even close to being able to stop a virus. They were designed to stop a doctor from breathing out bacteria toward a patient, and they were meant to be used for only a short period of time as the bacteria that are normally expelled out of your lungs are being trapped inside the mask and sucked back into the lungs, usually deeper than they were before. That's a bad thing. Think bacterial pneumonia. Side note, did you know that a virus can infect a bacteria? That's how small a virus is. Now, the N95s are even better, but they still aren't able to stop the virus to any great degree. Don't believe me? Well, ask whoever's telling you to wear an N95, or any mask for that matter, to protect yourself from COVID if they'd be willing to go abate some asbestos with their COVID-protecting mask of choice. Unless they're completely stupid, they'll not take you up on that offer as they know that the quite visible fibers of friable airborne asbestos 
will not be stopped by their mask, but they believe a virus that they can't see will be. Now, does that make any logical sense to you? It <laughs> doesn't to me. And keep in mind, this is all making the assumption that the mask is perfectly sealed to your face, and that's only the case about 0% of the time. One thing you'll hear is that the N95 fibers are charged, so they'll attract viruses and cause them to stick on the mask. Well, assuming that's true, and they've done no testing to really verify a virus would stick to the mask fiber, how many breaths in or out would it take to dislodge the virus? Now, we're not talking about a lot of charge here. We're not talking about a super powerful viral magnet. It's a weak static charge. This won't hold the virus for long, regardless of what they claim. And if any COVID virus does stick to the fibers, which I'm sure some will, and you breathe the virus back in, but deeper into the lungs, oh, does that sound good? It doesn't sound good. Oh, consider this. If I have a car and I put an air filter in there that's too restrictive, the car will run poorly or maybe not at all. It requires a certain amount of air, but if it doesn't get that, it'll just have problems. You're the same, sort of, but your lung capacity is actually a constant. In other words, in a normal breath, you breathe in the same amount of air every time and you breathe out that air every time. If you place a filter in front of your breathing holes, that doesn't change the required amount of air in or out. It just makes it harder to breathe in or out. So what this does is cause you to not get enough fresh air because you're taking shallower breaths or you're rebreathing more CO2 than you're trying to get away from you. But it also makes all the air being forced out of your lungs go through a much smaller area. Think of it this way. Think of your kitchen sink. If you turn the faucet on and just let it run, you get a good solid stream of water. It's not powerful because it's a full flow stream. Now grab the sprayer, point it across the room, and press the button. That same amount of water pressure is now being forced through smaller holes and dramatically increases the speed the water comes out and the distance that the water goes. When you put a mask in front of your face, it forces the air you exhale to travel through all the holes of the mask, a much more restrictive area, causing that air to come out faster and go farther, just like the sprayer. This means that if you have any airborne virus at all that's being exhaled, it'll go through the mask holes faster and shoot out farther than if you just breathe normally. Six feet of distance, which was another nonsense unscientific edict, well, that needs to be extended now, right? But how far? Now, over time, a filter will start to plug up with particulate that it's trapped, which narrows down the gaps in the mesh, helping it to catch smaller and smaller particles. And if you've ever seen a car with an oil filter that hasn't been changed for tens and tens of thousands of miles, you'll either see an engine that's been starved of oil and destroyed, or a filter that's collapsed so oil can get by. If you let your mask plug up uh, to the point where it's catching all of these small particles, you know, first of all, gross. Uh, second of all, you won't be able to breathe. Of course, there are masks that will actually filter out the virus. Look up the NIOSH site, NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or OSHA's site, or ask any industrial hygienist how long you can wear that mask. Typically, you'd be looking at 15 to 30 minutes before you're required to have a break out of the mask so you can actually breathe fresh air. Add to that the 14 studies performed over 40 years by the CDC prior to COVID, studying general population masking against the flu virus. Their conclusion is that it may do something, but they're virtually useless. Of course, then when COVID happened and they had to look like they were in control, they told us all to mask up, even though it made no logical sense, and we just gobble it up. Back to the article. 
masks that can filter the virus is where they go next. They cite first elastomeric respirators with replaceable filters, either the nose and mouth version only, or the one that's a full face goggle type thing that covers up your eyes as well. These are the big rubbery masks that you may see someone use when they're, say, they're spray painting or something like that. They're reusable and cleanable, and all that needs to be changed is the filter cartridges that have largish filters, but they're very limiting, and they claim to have the same static type of filtration abilities. And you're not supposed to wear these for long. And are you willing to wear something like this for a virus? I mean, seriously? And next, they talk about, I guess, papers, P-A-P-R-S, uh, Powered air purifying respirators. These are hoods with battery powered fans blowing air through HEPA filters into the hood. This is like what you'd see as part of a hazmat suit, like those that work in an Ebola zone type of thing. Sure, these would do well for the most part, but even this author admits that trying to get people to wear a battery powered hood is likely impossible. Oh, and he also states that they're pretty noisy and they're really bulky, very limited, and they cost over $1,000 each. So, you know, not ideal. But don't worry. For that next airborne virus or that massively deadly biological attack, the government and various colleges are working on the perfect mask. The federal government has apparently reached out to the people, I don't remember being asked, but to come up with the perfect mask. Some of the winners in the first phase were a, quote, semi-transparent mask, an origami mask, that sounds fun, and a mask for babies with a pacifier on the inside. <laughs> I can't begin to tell you how angry a mask for a baby makes me. For those that are looking at masking for future viruses, quote, the greater gains, they say, will come not from marginally improving the efficacy of existing highly effective masks, but from getting more people to wear highly effective masks in the first place. It's important to make masks easier for people to use, more comfortable and more effective, Lindsay Marr, an environmental engineer at Virginia Tech, told me it wouldn't hurt to make them a little more fashionable either, she said. Oh, fashionable masks. Abrar Karen, probably said that horribly wrong, an infectious disease physician and global health expert at Stanford, said he envisions a world where we all have one of those rubber masks, quote, not in most cases for everyday use, but available when necessary. Oh, not every day. He's too good to us. The author admits that getting people to adopt universal masking again would be very difficult. I agree. And he admits that masking people is probably just a minor thing as compared to better ventilation and germicidal lighting, but it's probably easier and more quickly enacted. So let me ask you, would you be willing to wear a large rubber mask? Would you be willing to wear a hood? Do any of you still trust the government at all with any of this? I mean, seeing as though every agency that's supposed to be using good science and good data to give us good advice has admitted to lying or has been caught lying or has contradicted themselves over and over, or a combination of all three, will anyone believe them if they tell you that you must mask up again? I sure hope that with some of the info I've given you here today, you'll at least push back absolutely everywhere you can. Wearing a mask is not about stopping a virus. It's about maintaining control. Based on all the science that's been done and confirmed now by the World Economic Forum, essentially saying the mask-up lockdown protocols were basically a test of global compliance, masks were never part of a legitimate strategy to keep anyone safe. If you're a believer in masks, I'm sorry, you've been duped. 
Although the human aspects of power and control, the political aspects of the masking and everything else are frustrating, the reality is this reflects a godless worldview. Yet again, let's look at what we know. 1. Viruses were created by no later than day 6. In a perfect creation, I don't exactly know why. I would think they served a purpose of some sort. We have no way of knowing with any certainty exactly what. Now, I did find an article on BBC that quoted an epidemiologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison that said, quote, If all viruses suddenly disappeared, the world would be a wonderful place for about a day and a half, and then we'd all die. That's the bottom line. Another individual, a virologist, said, quote, We live in a balance, in a perfect equilibrium, and viruses are a part of that. See, in fact, most viruses aren't even harmful to humans. They actually have very critical roles in ensuring our various ecosystems and various organisms are healthy. And you can read more at the link in the notes. So, a perfect balance. I wonder how that happened by random chance and chaos and, and how viruses do a lot of good. How, how did that happen? That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, let's go on. Number two, as we know, God is sovereign. Even the fall into sin was in complete control by God for his ultimate glory, and viruses now attacking other living creatures was part of the plan. Again, you ask why, and again, I have to say I don't know. I'm not God, and he hasn't told me. Number three, God created us with an immune system. Now, I can't see how Adam or Eve would have needed one prior to the fall, but after the fall, I would think their system would have worked perfectly, but would probably have degraded over time. To what point? Who knows? And then subsequent generations would slowly degrade as well. That said, number four, our immune system still works fantastically. For the vast majority of humanity, throughout all the mutations and variants of viruses, our immune system continues to protect us from severe illness. And number five, our immune system doesn't come pre-programmed to defend us. It's a fast response system combined with a long-term memory. The more varieties of viruses, etc. that we're exposed to, the more robust our system becomes. And number six, our breathing system wasn't meant to be restricted. All data shows that restrictions to the intake of air requires mitigations. Think of ventilators. Think of oxygen for mountain climbing. Think of oxygen for scuba diving. Think of industrial rules for time in and out of a respirator. If we can't breathe normally, we must do something to make up the difference. The worldview that we're being presented today is that our immune systems that were designed to work how they work don't work that way at all and won't work correctly anymore. We're also saying that our respiratory system that's designed to work the way it works doesn't need to work that way anymore. It'll be fine. Now, if evolution were true, and it worked the way we're supposed to believe it works, wouldn't we have evolved some sort of organic breathing filter by now, since this is apparently so crucial to the survival of humanity? You know, since we know that new viruses introduced into a population kills that entire population all the time, and since we know that viruses have been around for longer than Homo sapiens per evolutionary thinking, you'd think evolution would have figured this out by now. <laughs> Come on, evolution, get it together. But what we have is a system that was designed by God, a perfect system, now tainted and damaged to some degree by sin, but still an unbelievable design. We breathe in a combination of oxygen, nitrogen, and some other straggler gases, including any bacteria or viruses that are floating around in the air. Then we breathe out CO2 and a variety of bacteria and viruses, getting them out and away from us. Whatever makes it into our lungs and blood is dealt with and stored into memory. Sometimes, what comes in overpowers our immune system. This is when we use the blessings of medicine. And sadly, sometimes that isn't enough either, and people pass away. I won't start singing the circle of life from the Lion King here. 
But yeah, I mean, it is. Restricted breathing is bad enough, as it can cause all sorts of issues with oxygen deprivation. Rebreathing bacteria and viruses deeper and in greater quantities than we normally would can overwhelm the system, causing worse illness. But at the same time, trying to keep humanity from experiencing any viruses through overly restrictive masking or germicidal lighting, constant hand washing, extreme hand sanitizer usage, or locking down and distancing from others, or constant sanitizing of every surface, that'll do nothing but severely limit the long-term functionality of our immune system. This is like wanting to uh, DVR the game, but never putting in the criteria as to when and what channel to record. The end result is nothing. We don't need an immune system with nothing in memory. This is what happened when the first Europeans made contact with the Native Americans. They had no viruses in their immune system memory to fight what the Europeans brought with them, and many died from what we consider to be basic common colds. We seem to be in a period of our history of outright denial of truth that we've always known to be true, and a denial that systems work the way that we absolutely know they work. And this delusion that our world is choosing to believe is unbelievably dangerous. We don't want to be out licking doorknobs or letting COVID or whatever patients cough and sneeze on our faces, but we must stop denying the fact that we were created to function in a certain way and have been functioning that way for 6,000 years. Now, I have no problem with purpose design masks used for those specific purposes. If I'm going to do a lot of sanding, I'll wear an N95. And because I have a beard, and because it's not fit-tested, I'm blowing out sawdust boogers for the next few days. But that sucker will stop a virus. <laughs> but even there, I've at least done some external good, and what do you know, my nose hairs did what they were supposed to do too. What I have a problem with is an absolute denial of reality, an ignorance, a willing ignorance of design, of truth, of science. There's a reason why when Joseph Fauci was asked early in 2020 if he would have scientific testing done to verify masks will stop COVID, you know, to put to rest the arguments made by those mask deniers, he declined. He said that there was no need. They just knew they worked, which is odd because a few weeks prior and a few years prior, he said the exact opposite. See, these guys know better. They know masks can't stop COVID or the flu or the common cold or asbestos or sawdust or smoke. So let me say this. Anthony should be in the federal pen. Fauci is not saved. For us to expect him to be honest, truthful, and forthcoming as an unsaved individual is folly. He's going to lie and manipulate in order to get more power and control. You can extend that out to the politicians, big pharma, and the media personalities, the vast majority of which are also not saved. My greater disappointment is how many Christians ran to get the shots, ran to slather on copious numbers of masks, hid in their basements, all based on fear and blind faith in organizations that nobody has ever trusted, ever, because we were told that we'd all die. And we chose man's word over God's word. I mean, now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that being a Christian will save you from viral death. No, I mean, it can, did, and does happen. I'm also, again, not saying that we take irresponsible chances. I'm saying that God has given the believer a sound mind. We're called to meditate on God's word, to meditate on God's laws. We're told that we're supposed to pursue wisdom. So, is any of that Bible talking stuff true or not? If you decide to get vaxxed or to slap a half a dozen masks on, it should be done after careful reflection of the data, logical analysis of the narrative, diligent research of all aspects of the alleged crisis, and a solid grasp on scripture and then meld all that together in prayer, seeking God's guidance. And then, and only then, can and should a clear-minded, level-headed, rational decision be made. We're Christians, 
the only one we're supposed to be sheep for is the good shepherd. We're called to be different, which most pastors will say that means that we need to live out the Bible or live our faith so the world can see it. And I agree with that. But our God is a rational, thoughtful, logical God. So living the Bible should result in confident, rational, logical thoughts and actions, not panic, rash decision-making, running and hiding, and shame on those churches that enacted a vax policy or in some other way bullied and shunned those that made their decision on their own, seeking God's guidance. The shutting down of churches and the enacting of distancing measures was bad enough, and I'm part of a church that did that for a time, too long, in my opinion, but we've learned. Never again will that happen. Never. Christians are the initiators and custodians of true science and logical decision-making. And wow, for the most part, did we just collapse under the lies and the fear-mongering of Satan and his minions. For the Christian, this entire pandemic was nothing but death and defeat, unless we've learned something. So when the next pandemic arises, that they seem so desperately to want and continuously try to spook us with, when we're all told to don the perfect mask, you know, a rubber face mask or a fan-fed hood, if you're a saved individual, only, only put that mask on when you've used the God-given logic and intellect you possess. And if it doesn't make sense, don't do it. As Christians, we need to display love, kindness, and respect. And we do none of that when we decide to go along with mass hysteria and assist in propagating obvious lies. Quick, think of your junk drawer. Okay. I don't know what's in your junk drawer. It might be junk. It might be important stuff. It may be a mess that needs to be rattled back and forth. So whatever stupid thing is stupid stopping it from stupid opening will stupid get out of the way. Or it might be perfectly organized. Regardless of what it is, you definitely thought of a specific drawer. If you didn't think of a specific drawer, if you legitimately don't have a junk drawer, I mean, what's wrong with you? How, how much free time do you have? Conversely, if you thought, are, are there any other kinds of drawers? I mean, what? Again, what's wrong with you? You're, you're an adult. It's time to get things organized. Welcome back to the American Genesis. This is part five of our look at the Constitution of the United States. So why this junk drawer talk? Well, we're starting this episode with Article 1, Section 9, and I think you'll understand. So, uh, so let's read. Section 9. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1,808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in the cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. No bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. No capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. No tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state. No preference shall be given by any regulation of commerce or revenue to the ports of one state over those of another, nor shall vessels bound to or from one state be obliged to enter, clear, or pay duties in another. No money shall be drawn from the treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law and a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office 
of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, except of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Okay. Do you see what I mean here? I mean, this section, at least to me, kind of gives the appearance of being the junk drawer of Article 1 and, and really of, of the Constitution as a whole. They stuffed a whole lot of somewhat random things into this section, with the only real tie that I could find loosely binding them together being money. It's pretty loose, but it's in there. So let's quickly, and, and yes, with me, that is a relative term. I get that. Let's quickly go through these different points. Now, I'm going to skip the first clause for a minute and come back to it last. So, clause two, no suspension of habeas corpus. So, habeas corpus translates from the Latin to English as you have a body. But with regard to legal terms, this means that someone else has your body, as in the warden of a prison or similar. They have your body, you know, behind bars because you've been a naughty person. This clause says that you can't just throw someone into prison without actually having a legal reason for doing so. However, in cases of rebellion or invasion, for safety's sake, this could be suspended temporarily. This has been suspended a few times in our history. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure if this exact clause was used to justify all of these or not, but if it wasn't directly argued, it, it could have been. During the Civil War, this was used. During World War II, when FDR rounded up and locked up Japanese Americans, claiming that we had to keep an eye on all of those Japs, because you just never know. Side note, FDR was not a good man, and because of his actions, we had a Great Depression, rather than just a depression like the rest of the world, and he set in place many of these social welfare systems that will be and are contributors to the downfall of our country. Of course, he got his idea from Woodrow Wilson, one of our most evil, racist presidents, when he held German-Americans in internment camps during World War I, because we also couldn't trust those filthy krauts. More recently, you can think of terrorists in Guantanamo Bay, and I'll probably have the FBI come bust down my door, but the January 6th protesters, I believe history will show, have had their rights violated by being held without cause as well. Clause 3. No bill of attainder means that you can't have a body act as both judge and jury, both pronouncing guilt and pronouncing sentence. And no ex post facto law means that uh, unlike when you were a kid and you had that one kid that kept changing the rules in the middle of the game, you know, that made everyone mad. That's not something that can happen in real life. You can't be prosecuted for something that wasn't illegal when you did it. I think if we take a look at how many historical figures, monuments, cities, streets, or school names, etc., are being demonized as well as the ever-squeakening wheel for reparations and equity and justice for people that had nothing to do with slavery from people that had uh, nothing to do with slavery, I'm not confident this clause hangs on a whole lot longer. Methinks I hear the fibers of that last thread a-cracken. Clause 4, no capitation or other direct tax. Okay, capitation is a direct personal tax, like a poll tax. And this clause just says that if there are taxes, it has to be a tax fairly levied, not just targeted at a person. My guess is so that you couldn't penalize someone that you couldn't legally penalize some other way, you know, because you just wanted him to be punished. Clause 5 of no tax or duty on articles exported from a state and Clause 6, no preferential ports, no duties for entry from one state to another. Those are both stating that we're the United States, not a bunch of little countries. If we're one country, we need to be one country. Clause 7, this stops Congress, I'm assuming assembled, from just spending money all willy-nilly. They had to do this legally through legal taxing and legal spending. 
Huh. Clause eight. We aren't a nobility-based country or government. We are all citizens, and those in government were supposed to be public servants, not the all-powerful overlords that they've evolved into. This also stops anyone holding office from accepting any sort of a gift or title uh, from any kind of a foreign country, as this could almost be considered a bribe of some sort, you know, used to sway that individual in their favor for whatever nefarious purposes they may have. I don't... I don't think we follow this clause anymore either. And let's step back to clause one. So this allowed states to admit anyone into their state of their own volition for the next 20 years. More specifically, this put a cap on the importation of slaves. We've talked about how we just couldn't stop the slave trade in the Constitution at that specific time. You would have had some of the states refuse to sign, which would have fractured the young country and opened it up to either infighting or invasion from outside forces, who were most definitely looking for this country to crack up. My guess is that this is the same type of thing, giving slave states 20 years before stopping new slaves from arriving, as that, right? I also read one note that said this was done in order to convince South Carolina to join and sign. I, I really don't know. I couldn't confirm that. So Thomas Jefferson was president as this deadline rolled around. He apparently was ready for this as he introduced legislation in 1807 to enact the ban on January 1st, 1808. In fact, in his State of the Union address of December 1806, he urged Congress to take advantage of this constitutional deadline, quote, to withdraw the citizens of the United States from all further participation in those violations of human rights which have been so long continued on the unoffending inhabitants of Africa and which the morality, the reputation, and the best interests of our country have long been eager to proscribe. And proscribe means to prohibit. Remember, Jefferson was also the one that wanted to put a clause in the Declaration of Independence that clearly called out the evils of the slave trade that the British had forced upon the colonies, but it was overruled and taken out. He was a slave owner. And no, the odds of him actually impregnating Sally Hemings, one of the slave girls, is very, very slim. I know what the media tells us, because he must be evil in order for their narrative of all founders of America being evil, you know, so we can be humanist, loving, socialists and communists like Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez and Mao and Stalin and Hitler. But despite what we're told... An actual in-depth investigation was done, including analyzing DMA from Hemings and Jefferson descendants, and the evidence actually points to an uncle of Jefferson as being the most likely to have done this. Regardless, as I've said before, slavery has to be placed into the context of the times, and what we see over and over is that the founders, and specifically Jefferson, seem to feel compelled to end slavery eventually. And they trusted the American people to eventually get this right if they set the groundwork, which they did, which we did. So regarding Clause 1, some will argue that this just again shows the evil hearts of the founders, allowing African slaves to be shipped in for 20 more years. Make sure not to think of the Africans back in Africa that captured and sold their own people into slavery. We don't want to think about that. Personally, I see Clause 1 as being a compromised stepping stone to making slavery harder and harder to justify and continue to utilize. Think of it like putting cigarettes behind the counter, or putting a tax on sugary drinks, or forcing car manufacturers to produce 50% worthless electric cars by 2030. The more friction there is to get to your end goal, to get what you want, the less likely you'll be to try to get to that goal. Okay, moving on. 
Section 10, which is the last section of Article 1 and gets us halfway through the Constitution. Not counting the amendments, but we don't need to talk about that right now. Section 10, we read, No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of marquee or reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payments of debts, pass any bill of attainder, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of contracts, or grant any title of nobility. No state shall, without the consent of the Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws, and the net produce of all duties and imposts laid by any state on imports or exports shall be for the use of the Treasury of the United States, and all such laws shall be subject to the revision and control of the Congress." No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in times of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power, or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. Now, nothing really tricky here. If if we're going to be a country of multiple states, there are some things the states are going to have to act like a country about. If we're just going to be a loose confederation, well, that won't work. Most of these were basically just reprocessed from various articles in the Articles of Confederation, and they, at least to me, are just kind of miscellaneous issues that were either seen before, or currently, or were foreseen as potential problem areas. I mean, can you imagine if each state created its own money with its own value, or each state was able to declare war, or was able to enter into an interstate treaty against other states? Although, it could be uses. Hmm. And that's the end of Article 1. It's just that simple. Again, this article is basically the outline for the roles, powers, and responsibilities of the Congress. This is the powerhouse of the Constitution, as the House and Senate were set up as the overseers and major check on the other two branches. Unfortunately, our system has been all sorts of messed up. The Congress is now not for the people anymore, save for a few of the members. Overall, they're either for the president or against the president, and that's pretty much it. The president sets the agenda, tells them what he wants, and just goes around them when they don't do his bidding. And this is on both sides. And yes, we all cheer when our guy does it, and we all jeer when the other guy does it. The reality is is that neither should be able to do this. That said, Congress will fight for their state and their constituents if it helps to keep them in power. If you follow what our government is working on, again, except for a few that I believe are really working for the betterment of the people in the country, don't you kind of get that icky feeling that when they do something, whether you agree with it or not, that they're actually doing it for votes, money, power, and control? Yeah, yeah. So you get that feeling because that's exactly what, uh, what they're doing. Our system, although not perfect, was set up very well, but even the forethought that this thing was not perfect was addressed through the ability to make amendments without having to throw the whole thing out and start over. I believe, as I've stated multiple times, that this country was founded and firmly established as a vehicle for God to use to spread his common grace to much of mankind around the world and to spread the good news of his gospel around the world. I believe that the prosperity and freedom we enjoy is both a blessing from God and from a human standpoint, a necessary condition for a nation to propagate the message to the world. And yes, I know God didn't need America. He could have used anyone or done it any way he wanted. Totally agree with that. But he did it this way, so yeah. 
But as nations do, as we have ample examples of in the Bible, we've grown too big for our britches. We've turned from God and, like Nebuchadnezzar, said, look what we have done all for our glory. And for the record, I spelled Nebuchadnezzar correctly on the first try without looking it up. We can blame Satan. We can blame ourselves. Both of those are right. But this, too, is actually part of God's ultimate plan. If he's not in ultimate control, then someone else is, and he's not God anymore. That creates problems. At the same time, we are absolutely responsible for the choices we make as individuals and as a society. And oh boy. the choices we've made. Oh, the, oh there are some doozies. Uh, thank you, Hanana-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na for the soundbite. So, are we on the front edge of being punished by God for our disobedience, our idol worship, our corruption? I have no idea, but yes. As many these days want to violently rip out of context, quote, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, is that promise that was not made to us, made to us? <laughs> well, I mean... I think that humbling ourselves, turning from wickedness, praying for repentance, and seeking God, those would be good places to start personally and as a nation. Are we doing that right now? Well, depending on your definition of wickedness, no. And uh, also no. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, we're heading down the wrong direction right now. Still boldly marching into the slough of despond or the castle despair or the valley of the shadow of death, all singing that noisy rock music, smoking your wacky tobacco. We've definitely lost our way, much like I've done with the point in this episode. So to get us back on track, Congress, <laughs> am I right? right? What a mess. This is like the rebellion over and over of the Israelites, or every one of us every single day, and God pointing at the Ten Commandments, just pointing and tapping, looking, pointing. I mean, the instructions are right there, right? The instructions for Congress are right here. Kind of makes you wonder if they've ever read them. They're very powerful in depth, but they have a relatively narrow scope of that power, and they're supposed to be fighting for the people. And the way we know if Congress is working correctly is if almost no new bills or laws were passed from year to year. But here we are. It's okay, though. On our next episode, we're going to start enumerating, via Article 2, the massive cudgel the executive branch has to wield in order to shape the country into his image, for his glory. <laughs> this should be good. So the American Genesis will continue next time, don't you know? And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.